Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. This episode is about interpreting the past. Jill talks about one of the earliest methods used to make wine and how those methods are used now. Emily talks about musicians of today playing instruments modeled on those from hundreds of years ago to imitate performances of the 17th and 18th centuries. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist, wine list, and a glossary of terms used in this episode, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill. Emily Reese. What's going on? <laughs> Not much. How are you? So good and so excited to talk about interpretations in modern and antique forms of music and, and wine. wine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot of it is a taste thing in some ways because if you don't like the way baroque instruments sound, you're not going to like hearing a baroque band play. But very true. Same with wine. Um, what's interesting now is certain flavors, especially those coming from the Republic of Georgia, are starting to receive um they're starting to become quite noteworthy, not only for their uniqueness, but because they do um, harken back to a flavor that really is hard to find outside the country, not only rustic, but many say is one of the oldest flavors we still have for wine. Mm. And a lot of that does have to do with not only interpretation by the winemakers, but then interpretation by the person drinking it. Mm -hmm. And so we have a modern and an antiquated, both trying to emulate an right. antiquated flavor, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So you're, yeah. So you're going to talk about like, is this is it correct that this this is presumed to be the original way wine was made? Yes, with some caveats. Like we know that wine was probably made this way with extended skin maceration, uh, with the must, so with the wine. Mm -hmm. um, likely in a clay vessel underground. It's the oldest vessel we still have for wine dating back 8,000 years. But most likely wines were adulterated, whether it be with myrrh, whether it be with seawater. It kind of depends on what was around because wine at that time might not have tasted so good. So it was a way, it was healthier than water, got people buzzed. It was healthy, you know, it gave people antioxidants, even though they didn't know that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how does it work with with symphony and Baroque instruments? I think a lot of people listen to classical music mm -hmm. um, that don't think about classical yeah. music that way. Is that safe to say? Yeah, well, yeah, because, of course, the instruments that were lying around in the Baroque era were completely different than what we have available now. Like, every single one of them, like violins, violas, cellos, basses were all different. All the brass instruments were different. Some weren't even used yet, like trombones weren't even a thing yet, even though there were instruments kind of like trombones. Um, yeah, it's just everything was different. And so, you know, in the 20th century, some people just thought, well, maybe we should try and see what that would sound like if we played on... Because some of those string instruments are still around, like instruments from the 17th century, 18th century, they are still around and playable. So they're just trying to, like, do whatever research they can to find out what these instruments were 
like and then build them and play some tunes with them and see what it sounds like. And so would you say that most people that go to, a, granted, gross overstatement, right? But, you know, you take everybody that's going to the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra mm-hmm. and, gonna, you know, percentage-wise, how many people in that group have heard not only Baroque music, but Baroque music done in a as close as they can come to mm-hmm. a Baroque way. It's not a super common thing. It's a very specialized thing because all the instruments are different. Like the violins are a different size, meaning it's different techniques to play them. The bows are different. The, you know, I mean, it changes everything. Yeah. So uh, there, there are, you know, you have to be a professional to be able to switch back and forth between those two things. So that's why it's not super common. And when people are playing on period instruments versus modern instruments, do you mm-hmm. find that there's a, a a preference with, you know, for for you, let me just ask you, what do you prefer? Or is it does it <laughs> completely depend on what we're listening to? No, I, I think largely speaking, I when it comes to Baroque music, I love hearing that stuff on period instruments. Um, generally speaking, it's a much rounder, warmer, and even softer sound just because of how different the instruments were made and the types of strings that were used and um, the the types of materials that were used to make oboes and flutes warmed up the sound and made it um, uh, just kind of like a blanket and a cup of hot chocolate on a blizzardy day, you know, just this big, warm, embracing. And maybe that versus uh, hot chocolate that's at a coffee shop with white walls and that's really beautiful, but at the same time, it's just not, you're not home. It's just a different vibe. You're not home, snuggled up with the hot chocolate with the cat or dog next to you kind of thing. Right. Got you. Right. Yeah. So I would, I mean, my preference for sure is period instruments. I, I can understand why people get because it's still they're still just guessing right they're still literally guessing because we don't have recordings from the baroque era we don't have recordings from the classical era we don't we don't have recordings through most of the romantic era so it's all guessing guessing from even even looking at paintings of how people would hold instruments because baroque violins were held differently than what yeah didn't they, didn't they not have a chin piece they don't or something, have chin they... rest or shoulder rest so there's no piece on top or bottom and sometimes they would just literally put it into their into their arm not into their neck even you know wow so they're holding it like um, they're biflexing yeah and it was and like they're... there were instruments called like viola de braccia so the violin of the arm or the viola da gamba is the viol viol or viola of the legs so the cello type right mm. so gamba da gamba means leg and de braccia is arm and you know they all have just a little bit different sound and and I mean especially the way the string instruments are bowed. Um, really lends a totally different feel to the way the music sounds because the bows were so different. And, I mean, just every everything. Like, if you compare, for instance, like the second Brandenburg Concerto, and we'll talk more about those in a little bit, but just the difference between hearing a modern trumpet play that tune compared to a Baroque, also called a natural trumpet, play that tune is it's totally different. Thank you. 
Well, so I just looked at our, our timer there, and yeah. we've been going for 10 minutes, 10 minutes well, teasing me. eight, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. eight minutes teasing me, wondering what are we going to listen to. Yeah. Because you, you had told me Brandenburg Cocerto. Do you mind going yep. into why you chose that? No, sure. I could, I'd be happy to. Um, the Brandenburg Concertos, or if we're going to be super snobby about it, we would say Brandenburg Concerti, right? Okay. Yep. <laughs> Plural. Um, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, wrote six of these a little bit later in his life. He was hoping to get a job from a man who was, uh, he had uh, some kind of nobility position or court title, Margrave. He was the Margrave in Brandenburg, Christian Ludwig or something like that. And you probably have all this written down. You know it all, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, all I know is that Margrave was a like a marquis or okay. uh, marquis, depending on their, um, marques, depending on the region of okay. the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so he, he wants to get a job. He wants to you know, be the court writer for uh, the Margrave of Brandenburg. And so he writes these six concertos um, of varying lengths. All six have different instrumentation, and most of the music in them was recycled from other places. This was not an uncommon practice in the Baroque era or the classical era, really. I mean, even Beethoven recycled stuff. Mozart did it. Haydn did it. Handel did it. They all did it because they were required to write a lot of music, right? And so sometimes if they particularly enjoyed something, they would just like, well, I wrote that as a lute piece with piano, but if I like flesh this out to an orchestra, that could sound really cool too. And so a lot of the music in the Brandenburgs comes from other places and has been in a lot of cases altered in some way. They're just great. Each, each, Each one of the six is special in its own way, whether it's the sixth one, which doesn't have any violins, just has violas and lower strings. Um, number two is the only one with trumpets. Uh, number three is the only one that is just strings. There's no woodwinds or brass. Number four has recorders in it, two beautiful wooden recorders. Uh, number five is considered the very first uh, keyboard concerto ever. Um, so it's just they're unique, they're special, you know, and uh, that's a super long-winded answer, but I, I love them all dearly, and they're all really fun, and when you, because of the way Bach wrote these pieces and the instruments he chose to highlight throughout all six, there's solos in all of them, um, you can really get a feel for how the instruments sound different than if you compare it to what a modern orchestra sounds like playing it. So. So they're just fun to compare and, and fun to hear. So I couldn't believe, like, I've, I've heard period pieces, you know, more remotely than listening to things back to back. And I listened to them back to back all weekend. <laughs> there was no Janelle Monet this weekend. <laughs> and there, you know, there was no uh, Offenbach this weekend. Wow. There was back to back Brandenburg 5. Because yeah. they were just that interesting to listen to. And I would, especially going back to, um, you know, the harpsichord solo and just listening to how different those sounded, even though they're both mm-hmm. on the harpsichord. Mm-hmm. And for me, the flute was, you know, they all sounded different. And even there were, like, juxtapositions in, like, transitional parts, yeah. which I won't get ahead of myself, but I was just shocked at how... 
you know, the, the different parts of the concerto could come together in ways that were chunkier or ways that were more fluid. Yeah. It's worth a whole weekend listen, everyone. to open wine it is yeah no because uh so you were saying yeah let's let's taste some wine let's taste some wine let's do it please please all right so i i chose two wines from the republic of georgia um both from on this map here that i brought for you to check out emily <laughs> I'm and looking. Uh, for anyone else that is interested in georgia we're looking we're going to be drinking two wines from a very common part of georgia called cajeti in the east um and Cajeti is known for producing over 80% um, of Georgian wines, both in the past and also currently. Um, and we're going to compare two producers that are making, they're um, growing and elaborating a grape called Mutsuane. And Mutsuane is known for being sort of, it can be kind of brash, kind of plump, um, can be kind of sexy, but can also be obtuse. And they're both made with extended maceration months, pushing a half a year. Um, so maceration, you're, you're conjoining the skins with the must. And even after it's churned into wine, you still have maceration happening. Um, in a quevery, which a quevery is a Georgian clay vessel um, that sort of looks like a, I don't even know it's how to talk about this other than imagine a sphere that's kind of oblong with a nipple-shaped bottom and an open top. And this is normally in Georgia, it's buried underground uh, to regulate temperature. It's also, it almost emulates a, a mother's womb, um, which we can talk about that later. But uh, the reason that I chose these two is because you know, inevitably, if someone were to taste them, most people would have a preference. Um, but you can definitely tell, even though they're made virtually the same way, one is really mimicking a style that is millennia old. And the other is, it's there. It tastes cleaned up. It's a little bit more polished. It's a little mm -hmm. bit more just quote unquote palatable. Um, and so they very much so mimic in a way that we can smell and taste what's happening to our ears when we're listening in our brains when we're listening to the Brandenburg Concertos number five. Yes. Oh, so excited. Okay, so <laughs> shall we? Yeah. All right. First, I'm going to pour, um, I don't know if Emily's going to go antique to modern, but I'm going to go modern yep. to antique. Yeah, no, I that's how we're going to do it too. I feel like the um, difference is a lot more... Um, the modern almost doesn't taste like much after the antique yep. version. Yeah. Uh, so I won't mention the producer. I'll just use modern uh, and antique because okay. I, I don't want to poo-poo yep. one or the other. Um, so this this first wine is made uh, close to Talavi is the region where the grapes are grown. Okay. Um, a lot of sandy loam soils. There's a lot of very rich humus in this area um, in the topsoil. And tell me what you think. Definitely an orange slash amber wine with all the skin contact. Cheers. Cheers to scores and pours. 
Scores and pours. So you notice it has tannin, like it clings to bit. your gums a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. You notice that it smells a little bit, it smells like wine, it smells vinous, but it doesn't, there's nothing too offensive or funky about this, in my opinion. It's, it's really straightforward. Yep. Yeah. And like easy to drink, really yep. nice wine. A lot of, uh, you know, when people go to the Republic of Georgia as a tourist, this is what's in a lot of, like, tourist bars and restaurants. And so people come back and go, oh, my God, I had Georgian wine, and it's so great. And it is really great. It is really yeah. fun. Uh, but it it's it's a little bit of a far cry from... Yeah. It's the safe side. The it, safe. Yeah. It is definitely the safe yeah. side. Yep. Those metal flutes. No, just kidding. Just <laughs> <Exactly>. kidding. <laughs> um, so what what would we listen to as an equivalent to this? Well, to this, I mean, we would just listen to any kind of modern orchestra, more or less playing playing some Brandenburg. And, um, you know, as I said, um, each of the six has drastically different instrumentation. And initially, the reason I sent you five is because, selfishly, it's like a really super important piece to me. Like, I, I have very strong emotions about this piece. And then on top of that... Uh, I just found it so interesting when you listen to a lot of modern orchestras that have recorded the Brandenburg concertos, how they hide the harpsichord in the mix, as we say. So in the recording, the harpsichord is just back in there, just kind of quiet. But then if you listen to a, a Baroque band, the harpsichord is in your face because it's such an important part of the ensemble, you know? So we could listen to a modern orchestra playing Brandenburg 5, and it might even be kind of hard to hear the harpsichord at first because it's so far back there. So Brandenburg 5, this is a, believe me, absolutely wonderful ensemble uh, called the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, led by an absolutely wonderful uh, conductor, Sir Neville Mariner. So no, this is not to say this is bad at all. This is just a comparison. This is a modern orchestra playing modern instruments and uh, that's so, and it's just, it's just a different taste. It's and are we listening to uh, the Allegro? Listening yeah, to the first the movement? first movement. Yep, first movement. Um, things to listen for as well before I hit play. Uh, if you're familiar with the sound of, you know, flutes and, and such, try to really focus on um, the clarity and laser-like clarity of the instruments like the flute and the oboe. Um, flute being metal flute, oboes being made out of a hard, hard, hard wood compared to what they used to be made out of. So those things just pop, you know. So, um, you know, that's something to listen for. Um, uh, anyway, here, here it is. Another thing to listen for that's really important is vibrato. If you're familiar with what vibrato is, that's like this kind of emotional thing that people do with music where they're like making the notes wobble. Like vocalists do it, right? Instrumentalists. Way more vibrato in modern playing than in Baroque playing. And you can hear it a lot in the violin, the first violin and in the flute. 
See, we should be hearing the harpsichord like crazy, right? The harpsichord right? is such an important part of this texture, and it's just, it's really kind of sitting in the back seat. You know what I mean? Yeah. So do you mind, I think it'd be a really interesting transition um, to fast forward to the, well, actually, should we do the intro to the old? Yeah. And then, um, and then drink some old wine? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. You want your old wine or this old tune? Crank on the crank on the old intro because it's just the intro is just the the difference in the two, oh. the way they start. And and to be fair, a lot of this is a direct result of the types of instruments they're playing. It's not even so much the interpretation; it's the fact that the instruments they are playing on in this next recording were that's what that music was written for. harpsichord right there. Like right there, the, the flutes. And the vibrato, you hear there's much less vibrato. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the tone I felt like with the flutes, it was almost like like if you had milk that was whole milk, yeah. that would be the, the modern flutes. And then it would be like cream on top, because I, I wouldn't even want to compare it to whole milk and 2%. Yeah. It's like whole milk, because it's still very rich and very pure yeah. in the modern, but the, the period piece is like cream on top, like there's just a little bit more suppleness around the edges which is yep yep i won't even i won't even throw my well personally i, li- I like that sound i the like wooden, both the sounds flute. but if i had to choose if i could only listen to one yeah i would i would listen to the old one you would if if i had yeah. to choose i'm yeah. glad i don't have to because i love them both yep no again it's just a difference in taste and uh, sound i mean it's not you know it's not one is better than the other. It's just they're very different, and everybody has a preference. So should we taste old wine? Yeah. Okay. Please. So this version, um, wine number two, is aged for just about the same amount of time on the skins. In this vintage, there's no sulfur added, and all done with indigenous yeast like the first wine. Once they make wine in the clay pot, <clears throat> and the clay pot you said is called a quevery? Correct. Um, or a chudi, or a, there are lots of um, terms for bigger and smaller size, and depending on the region, but quevery is the okay. internationally known name. Okay. Can those be used again, or one and done? Absolutely, they definitely okay. can. Um, they are after they're emptied, and that's just what's so cool, too, about Georgian wine and the old flavor is these guys here, wine number two, they're... All foot trodden. The new one. The 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 old antiquated. School. Yep, number two. The old, no. we'll call it the period wine. Okay, period, the period wine, wine. Wine and the modern wine, even though they're both made the same way, um, or virtually the same way. The period wine is literally uh, their foot trotting after the grapes have macerated. Um, okay. In the must, and then in the wine, uh, the skins they will. You know, with a siphon, you know, they'll suck the wine out and uh-huh. get it into a different quevery to rest, usually. Oh. Um, 
and they will... How do they do that? They're right next to each other or something? Yep, for example. Okay. Or or, or they'll, you know, it could be four queveries away, but sometimes it's with their mouth and they, depending on the size of the quevery, um, they'll suck the juice out, make sure that the tube is, is, you know, down far because they're working with gravity. Right. um, Once they, just law of physics to get wine from one vessel to the other. Yeah. And then whatever is left in your... um, in your quiver, you've got all these skins, so they will put it in, it's called a sasnacheli, which yeah. is like a hollowed-out tree trunk, and they will stomp grapes. Okay. And that they'll run that now wine into the quivery to age, and then they'll bottle it. I mean, this is, as you can see, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you can see all the good sediment in there. Oh, yeah. But yeah, there's all kinds of stuff at the bottom of that bottom of that bottle. So tell me what this smells like to you. What it smells like? Sure. Is it more aromatic? Do you yeah. notice? Yeah, yeah. It smells fruitier. You smell that element of kind of that element of clay and there's kind of dried fruit. It's kind of almost woody, even though there's no no yeah. wood. There's like it's stemmy. There's a lot of what I love about these period wines, for yeah. lack of a better description. Yeah. Or just to for, for congruency with yeah. our conversation, <laughs> yeah, um, is that they smell like so many netherly things. Like, you know, people say cows are so wise because their noses are always to the earth. <laughs> and I feel like when I smell this, yes, there's fruit, and the, but there's so many other. Th- it's like mushrooms and mm-hmm. undergrowth and animals and just so many things, including fruit, of course. It's delicious. <laughs> I'm having a moment over here in the corner. <sighs> it's delicious. And it's an, it's an adventure, which I like. It's not simple. It's complex. And it takes you, you start one place. And it's the word that I always use that you hate it when I use it, because I can never figure out what the right word is, but it's it's like almost a spiciness when it hits my tongue right away. I was going to guess if it was that word. Yeah, spicy. yeah I know. That's <laughs> the only word I think I use that you hate consistently. But but is it acidic? Is that what it is? Is it like make your mouth water and kind of prickle a little bit? Or Yeah. Yeah. Acidity. Yeah. Mm. I'll learn. It is, it, is, it is definitely acidic for sure. Yeah. Um, and... I guess what what fascinates me here in a way that could I'd be curious with the Brandenburg concertos is to ask or concerti <laughs> is to ask people that listen to classical often but maybe they don't study it or they don't listen to it with as much intention as say you and I do for this podcast but mm-hmm. um I'd be curious what they prefer if they listen to the two because I do think that the modern piece has more it's kind of more grandiose in a way that you wonder if people could relate more to it. Well, I'm sure the ensemble's bigger, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Probably not that much bigger, but it's probably bigger, which would lend a little bit, you know, fuller sound. So do you mind if we listen to two, um, it's the where the cadenza of the harpsichord blends with, is it true that the antiquated is it's running at a quicker tempo, right? Yep, it it's a little like. faster, little little yep, brisk. So do you mind if we go to the modern mm-hmm. and we listen at about nine fifty? Right where the 
uh, cadenza starts? Right where their cadenza finishes, and you hear the entry of the rest of the orchestra. And it is, it's so, it's just different. Okay, so now go to 9.32 okay. of the antiquated, the period yep. piece. And maybe it's a little before that, so maybe 9.20. Okay. And listen to the where the cadenza ends. Like, is it just me, or is one a uh, smoother transition than the other? Well, it seems like the second one is a little smoother to me. Yeah. Yeah, than, and, the, than the first one. And yeah. why is there a well, reason why that I think that's a conductor be? choice, personally. I oh, think the okay. conductor who quite possibly, um, I'd have to think, but sometimes in these period pieces, the conductor is the harpsichordist. So um, I'm not sure if, actually, I'm not sure if Roy Goodman is a harpsichordist or not, but that's who's conducting this period piece, um, <clears throat> no, this period band. Uh, I would say that's a, that's a conductor choice because the conductor is, like, choosing to, like, put a little bit of a break after that harpsichord finishes to start the ensemble. That's what it sounded like to me in the first one. Tiny little, like, um, you know, dramatic, like, super, super fraction of a second pause before going back to the full orchestra. Yep. And in the second one, it sounds like that doesn't happen. And is there, do you know, is there a reason for that? No, I, I seriously think that's just a conductor choice. Okay. Like, that I don't think has anything to do with, like, period this or period that. I think that was just a how the conductor chose to okay. go back into Interesting. it. But yeah, that's a really good observation. Do you have a part in either of these Allegro movements that you think is the epitome of their difference? Where their the differences are so astoundingly Yeah, I mean to me it's just the very first chord. You know, I mean, because I mean, just literally from from the outset, you can tell this is a different. These are different instruments because I was saying so much about how you know the bows are different in the Baroque era, and so what that meant was in in modern stringed instruments, the bows are designed so that you can have an evenness of volume and tone throughout the whole. Um, pulling or pushing of the bow across the strings. That's how they're built. In the Baroque era, they weren't built that way. They were built so that the longer you held a, a tone, the tone would taper away. And if you did an up bow, so right, there's the pulling across and then the pushing back of the strings, right? So down bow is the strong one where you're pulling down. Mm -hmm. And as you're pushing up, that even in modern instruments is a weaker sound, but it's still much weaker of a sound with a Baroque bow because of how they're made. So an up bow starts at the end of the bow, right? Yep. You're down here with your arm, and you're, and that's the weakest part of a Baroque bow is the very tip, which I think is called the 
fro- is the frog? No, the tip is the tip. The frog is where your hand is. Okay. <laughs> the tip's the tip. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you can hear that. I feel like you can hear that so clearly in this because the rhythm of the melody is da 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 da, right? Da 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 da. It's all eighth notes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you hear those eighth notes so evenly in the modern version. It's literally like da 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 da. Oh yeah, and good in the call. period version, it's not. It's more like da 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 da. Yeah, I can't even do it that fast. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like there's, there's that fluctuation in piano yeah, and forte because like they're just da 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 oh, da. Right. So every time they're doing the up bow. Oh, let's listen to it again. Yeah, <laughs> let's listen to it. Let's listen to it. All right. So the, the modern one first. The modern one first. Sure. Yeah, so you can hear the evenness of those eighth notes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So good. How cool is that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... Okay, so... Yeah. All right, so we've got the... We've got the... That was like... That was was almost too good. Okay, so... (laughs) So... Let's talk about this. Let's draw a parallel to the next experiment that yeah, I brought. Let's. So, because I'm out of wine. Well, and but you, that doesn't matter because we're going to use vessels this time. Nice. So grab that. These really are. It, it looks like you would think of like, and I don't know anything about, you know, the history of ceramics or anything. But if I think of like a big terracotta pot that your mom plants flowers in or something. That's what this is only with the nipple end, yeah. which is amazing. But that's how they put it in the ground. They start it. The reason why this nipple was chosen to be here and to even exist was, is and was that as fermentation transpires and it's called the cap, where the, the layer of skins. Okay. And I should mention that this is a 50-50 ratio of in this vessel of skins to to wine. Wait, so, so it, when this is underground, half of it is skins yeah, and the so, other half is wine. Yep. So my goodness. Which is probably well, that's one of the reasons why they don't in a in a good producer, if they're clean enough, they don't need to use sulfur, right? There's so right. much antioxidants, so many already there, but um are ex- ex- exuding themselves into the juice, but you've got um that cap will fall in any fermentation, regardless of vessel, it'll fall down to the bottom. The skins will. Yep. yep. And those skins can, and the pips and everything can, if it's if your wine is on the skins too long, you can have off aromas. And so what what the Georgians figured out before they even knew what was like scientifically happening was that as the cap falls in a, imagine this being a thousand times larger. Yeah, yeah. This they fall into the cap or into this into little, the nipple, little, little nipple. Yeah. And then you've got a minimum amount of wine touching skins. Oh. Like thousands of years ago. That's amazing. So ridiculous, That's right? That's brilliant. Okay, so yeah. 
Um, why I brought these vessels, not only because it's so fun to drink out of them, um, is so I've tried to put Spanish wine that's done in clay in these vessels. And okay. even though it tastes really fun, um, they, it, something about it doesn't seem right. I've taken, I've drank water out of here. And then, of course, you just have water that tastes like clay. Um, but the reason why I brought these was Georgians, a lot of Georgians have these to drink wine out of because glassware is expensive. And, you know, usually Georgians don't sit and smell and, you know, let's have a big, huge fuss over our wine. Wine is just part yeah. of the table. And so they'll maybe fill this a quarter of the way. Mine is about a four tablespoons or so. Emily's is more like about a good cup and a half of liquid could fit in there. Um, Georgians will fill theirs with about two sips worth. Okay. They'll drink it right away. And you notice there's no place to set yeah, this no, down. Yeah, no, because it's got a pointed bottom. <laughs> yeah, so you're you're taking a, a swig and then you're, you're, you're finishing whatever you put in there and you're mm -hmm. setting it on your table and going about your business, eating, drinking, or okay. hanging out. Yeah. So um, the point of this is that you're not filling this with wine to sit and decipher and, and look at the color or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're also, um, Georgian wine, uh, you may or may not get along with your mother. I thankfully get along with my mother. And when my mother gives me a hug, it's unlike anybody else's hug. When you drink Georgian wines out of Georgian clay that are made in a good way, I didn't mean for that to all rhyme. And I didn't mean to say good way either, but made in a way that is, um, you know, transparent and honest and without a lot of nefarious activity. It tastes like a mother's hug. And if you put other things in it, it can taste really awesome, but it doesn't taste like that. So what I thought we would do is put uh, about a tablespoon of the modern wine. Okay. And take a little sip. Okay. And then we'll take the old wine, or the, the sorry, we'll take the period wine. Yeah. And taste it. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, this is when we say Galmarjos. Galmarjos. So it kind of tastes to me like different. Kind of, can you mind handing me that bottle there? Not so, at all. the new wine or the more modern wine tastes good. It tastes um, like structure. I don't get a lot of other nuance. Okay. Now we'll put about a tablespoon of period wine okay. in our Georgian clay. Galmarjos again. Galmarjos again. And now taste that right next to a little tablespoon in your glass because you'll be able to decipher how different they hit you on the palate like they are just more Weird. alive in the clay. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's better or worse. It's just mm -hmm. I can't unfortunately see it or smell it in the clay vessel. Yeah. But man, is it expansive. You kind of can't smell it, can you? You no. just smell the clay. Mm -hmm. Weird. Give me some more of that. And inevitably, whenever I bring, you know, a cool Georgian wine and I bring fun vessels to drink out of, <laughs> people will inevitably, they'll taste both. And then they do exactly what you just did. They put the vessel in front yeah. of me and they say, can you fill me up, Joe? Yeah. say, well, I won't throw a, a cup in your glass, but I will <laughs> tablespoon you. The side-by-side -side difference is astounding, I think. It's smoother out of this. I think that... The clay. is smoother out of the clay. And I wonder if, like, 
two clays, it's like you've got two clay intrusions on itself, and so it smooths it out, whereas there you have crystalline clay. Mm-hmm. And just how that, it accentuates it coming onto her palate, I don't know. But yeah. I I think it's an interesting comparison. I like the, I like smelling the clay while I'm drinking the wine, too. You know what I mean? I mean, these, these were um, literally... Yeah, I like the smell a lot. I literally um, got these mm-hmm. vessels from about, from miles away from this winery. Mm-hmm. So the same clay that we're drinking out of is what this has been aged into. And there's a kinship. I've got clay vessels at home from different regions. Yeah. And then you start getting into when you start tasting wines from regions, different regions, and they it's pretty fascinating stuff. I would, if it's okay, like to taste the newer wine in the vessel again, in do the wanna, clay. Do you want to try new in clay new on in glass? Clay. Yeah, sure. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, it's so weird to smell it in the clay. It smell yeah, that's that's a good time, to be honest. We haven't even said these are white amber. Have mm-hmm. we said that? We did. We used amber orange. Oh, okay, that. okay, yep. okay. And Mutsuane, I used the grape, which I guess not everyone knows is a white grape. Should I just use the... I... Mutsuane? Mutsu, it looks like Mutsvane, and this is Mutsviviani. They're both the same thing, different dialects. Okay. Um, but Mutsvane is pronounced Mutsuane. Mm. The interesting thing I find about the newer wine, the modern wine in the clay, is that it, it doesn't, the modern wine, it tastes better to me in the glass than it does in the clay. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Cool. In what way? Yeah. Why better? Because um, the clay, like, kind of overtakes the simplicity of that wine. Okay. So you like the new wine better in the crystal. Yeah. Which makes sense, because just... Way better. Which makes sense yeah. just in terms of analogy, like... Yeah. You know, this is the the this can handle clothing that it's supposed to wear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can we listen to the more modern version of Brandenburg's fifth? Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, at about two twenty or so, um, through to three minutes. There's um, beautiful flute portion. That really yep. highlights the flute. Yep, and the fifth Brandenburg, uh, one of the instruments. Remember how I said earlier at the start of the show how each of the Brandenburgs had soloists or highlighted something in some way? Mm-hmm. And uh, in the fifth Brandenburg concerto, it is the first violin, the flute, and the harpsichord. Those okay. are the three solo instruments in the cool. fifth one. So, so yes, some flutey goodness in uh, what moment? Two something? Two twenty? Two twenty would be great for the new one. So do you mind now if we do around in the period piece, if yeah. we go to, it's maybe a little bit before that. So again, this is the period instrument, so that flute, just really try and listen for that vibrato. There's going to be so much less vibrato, too. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, they're so different. So they're different. Just... So different. And I only sent you a side-by-side of the fifth concerto. Now, keeping in mind that uh, they're all different, they all have different instrumentation, I think it would be fun in a minute if we listen to a little back-to-back from uh, one of the other Brandenburg concertos that I maybe didn't send you. That would be fun to see you. I would love that. I wondered if, do you happen to know if this period piece that we're listening to, um, is the flute a one piece or is it after that time in the, I don't remember if it was the 1740s or 20s when it became a three piece? I would imagine that what they're playing on right here is a one-piece wooden flute that has no keys, maybe one or two keys, but mostly holes, okay. right? So like a modern flute has all those keys on it and is, well, <laughs> metal for one thing. Yep. Uh, usually silver-plated, sometimes gold-plated. Um, again, both of those make a very drastic sound as well, a, a gold-plated versus a silver-plated. That's like a, a yellow trumpet versus a silver trumpet, very mm-hmm. different sound. Uh but with uh, with Baroque instruments, um, they were wood, and they were different kinds of wood. It wasn't always just one type of wood flute. And so in period ensembles, you'll see the flutists will have different kinds of wooden flutes. Sometimes they'll be like a real blonde color and sometimes, you know, mm. a darker wood or so, yeah. something like that. But was it is it um, true that it was the 1700s when more and more keys were added, like late yep. 1700s there were three, and then it was like really close to the 1800s, three more were added. It was like a lot of keys added yep. within a century. Yeah, and that's true for like every instrument that has keys or valves. Okay. Like that shit was added incrementally. Like it wasn't like suddenly trumpets had three valves. It was like, no, trumpets had keys first and then valves. You know what I mean? Like it was an evolution through all of these. The only instrument that really hasn't evolved at all is the trombone, (laughs) 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 which poor trombones. But I mean, they basically, they got like a valve in like the 19th century and that's it, you know, (laughs) but otherwise it's just like all day. But (laughs) it's like, um, you know, like oboes, pretty much... All the instruments that have keys now, like flutes, oboes, uh, clarinet wasn't really a thing. So let's just say flutes and oboes. They didn't have those in the Baroque era. They got them later, and they were just added over time. You mm. know, it wasn't like suddenly, boom, the fish has legs. It's It took time. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So we should listen to if you have them queued up. Okay, yeah. This is a good one. This is, a, this is good because... Um, uh, this is the second movement of the first Brandenburg Concerto. The first Brandenburg Concerto, I th- I'm pretty sure, is the longest and uh, also has a lot of really great horn parts. The horns at the time didn't have valves. The trumpets didn't have valves. They had holes. They had, like, vent holes that would help them play some notes more in tune. Like, if you think of, like, have you ever played, like, a tin whistle or a recorder where you can do, like, half-holing to make notes sound more in tune and stuff? That's what trumpets would do. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But but also the winds, too. Flutes and oboes and stuff would do a lot of half-holing or cross-fingering. So, you know how there's, like, when you play, like, a tin whistle or something, there you can push fingers down that don't really change the note. It just makes it tune a little different. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a half hole, like you're covering a whole note, a whole hole, but it's not changing the tone as much as it's like adjusting the pitch slightly. So those are all ways that they would do cross-fingering and half-holing and cool. all of that stuff. So this um, 
So is what we're hearing a period piece? Yep. Or is so it, this okay. is this is the second movement of the first Brandenburg Concerto, and it starts with a really lovely uh, kind of oboe cry um, in the upper register of the oboe, and it's just really, really lovely and fun to listen to uh, the difference between this particular oboe made out of wood compared to the modern oboe made out of wood, like a different wood. Notice that vi- the push in the violin too is that same story here, right? Where yeah. it's difference in volume. It's it very sounds like. even, very even in this modern. This is oh, modern, this is the modern, so this one. is very even. Yeah. I was wondering. I was like, am I not hearing it, or am I? Said, I thought you said this was going to be the old one. Yeah, this so is when the I was, new one. When I listened to it and heard all that vibrato, I was like, what? And then when the violins came in, I was like, well. Am I hearing change of volume, or am I not? Do I not have both of these on because I'm kind of sitting like this? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Okay, so let's. Do you mind starting it again? And we'll. Nope. We can use our third. Sure. Go. Sure. Right. Hear how shrill the violin is, too? Mm-hmm. Shrillness. All right, so you want to hear the old one? Period. Period now? Period now. One thing we haven't really addressed either is the intonation, like the tuning, like Baroque, uh, in Baroque times, A, which is the pitch that uh, orchestras and bands even tune to, A, concert A, uh, these days is usually at 440 hertz, which means there's 440 um, vibrations or whatever per second, right, for the tone. But back in the Baroque times and the classical times, it was much lower than that, even as low as like 430. 
So that's why when we play these back-to-back, one sounds like it's in a different key, because they're not. They're just tuned differently. I think the difference in the tone in the oboe is is uh, really drastic. Oh yeah. Between those two recordings, more so than the recordings of the um, violin, because they're possibly using a piccolo violin there, which was a baroque instrument that was tuned a minor third higher than a modern violin. However, still with gut strings, that's a huge difference too between Baroque stringed instruments and modern stringed instruments is the Baroque stringed instruments use sheep gut strings, not steel strings. Um, some of the strings, like particularly in the um, lower instruments like the cellos or basses, they will have um, wound strings, you know, metallic, maybe silver, wound around the string, but it's still uh, the base of it is a gut, sheep gut. And that's not the case with, you know, nylon, right? Like, they're yeah. nylon strings. When did metal become incorporated onto um, sheep guts? When did it become incorporated on the sheep gut? Like, was it ever just naked sheep guts and then someone said, hey. Oh, I'm sure play. it would have been. But then I'm sure they discovered that the metal really helped it resonate on the big, big fat low notes. And maybe to last longer? Like, perhaps, you just wear yeah. out the, okay. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Because we're talking about, like, performance practice and historically informed performance in terms of an ensemble, right? We're talking about a a group of musicians who have gotten together and said, we want to see what it might have sounded like in, you know, 1700 or whatever. Let's just give it a whirl based off of drawings and pictures and writings and whatever. And that's badass. There are some things that we just know... Like, we know that Bach played a harpsichord. We know that. He did not play a piano. The modern mm-hmm. piano was not around when Bach was around. Yeah. Uh, and even then, the piano invented right around when Bach was still alive, but still so different than what the modern piano is now that, um, you know, Bach played the harpsichord. The end. And I rarely enjoy hearing Bach on a piano. Rarely. Uh, I And if, if I am, if I'm listening to someone play Bach on a piano, it's got to be just a handful of performers because everybody else, in my opinion, just does it wrong. Like, that's not what that music was written for. And it just, to me, doesn't sound right when you use a sustain pedal on the C major prelude or whatever. You know what I mean? Just, it, it's it was so specifically written for an instrument that's not a piano. And I appreciate that, you know, not everybody has a harpsichord laying around, obviously, but, mm-hmm. and everybody should play Bach, whether it's on an alto saxophone or a piano or a fucking dulcimer or whatever, we should all play Bach. But in terms of me going to a performance, I'm probably not going to go hear a solo pianist go through Bach. Um, you know, if Glenn Gould was still around, perhaps... I would definitely go see Angela Hewitt 
play Bach, but most people might listen to, I wouldn't even say, a lot of people might not like her style because it is fairly um, mechanical and broke. As opposed to like a Simona Dinnerstein or an Anders Schiff who might play with a lot more emotion and volume and affectation. Things that weren't available, you know, Bach couldn't make his harpsichord louder or softer. And I mean, truthfully, I I do think that um, the modern orchestra we're listening to, which is Academy at St. Martin in the Fields, they're a fantastic chamber orchestra, but I'm never, ever going to go listen to them for Baroque music. Classical music, great. They're a really good classical era uh, band, even though they aren't necessarily using period instruments for that either. Um, but they're a great ensemble. I just, my preference would never be to listen to them playing the Brandenburgs. You know what I mean? That's mm -hmm. just never, that's just not going to happen. I don't know. What do you think after hearing all of this? Like, what did, what were your re initial reactions when you listened to them back to back? Well, if I, I'll answer that question first and then I'll bump it over to wine because it'll be an easy transition. Okay. I enjoyed them both. Personally, I'm just interested and, and this is, you know, obviously just to speak to to my own what what like turns my crank is they're both obviously well executed and beautiful pieces. It's more intriguing to listen to the period piece. You know what you said. I I would never go. Uh, you know, you'll go listen to them play classical music, but to listen to them play baroque specific music, that's exactly how I feel about the two Georgian wines we're having. One is, and this is a, a little bit more harsh than your analogy, but one is a tourist Georgian wine and the other is a farmer Georgian wine. And as I've toured the country of Georgia on a couple occasions, I've had plenty of both. And I think I, I told you on a, on a, on a break when, when we weren't recording that the modern wine, Georgian wine that we're tasting is... And it's because it's a modern replication of, it's like a cleaned up replication of a farmer wine. It'd be like my Tahitian Georgian wine. Like if I was on an, a desert island and I hadn't had Georgian wine in 10 years and I saw the label, I'd be like, oh my gosh, Georgian wine, I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. But in the end, um, it doesn't, you know, I, as I tasted it here in the corner and I've had this wine dozens of times, the period wine, like I get tearful just knowing how it's made, where it's made, who's making it, and the fact that it does taste, it tastes like the Georgian countryside. It tastes like strife and tribulation. And if I'm going to pay for an experience, I'm going to pay for period wine over, yeah, you know, the other wine. No, for sure. Um, well, let's name, you can name the period wine. Name that one at least. Well, it's from a it's from a producer who, and there's there's actually a lot there's a lot more kind of in depth period wines than this producer 
as well. But and I, I want to digress. There's a lot of cool things happening right now in Georgia. The Georgians have traveled. They've experienced. You know, you've tasted petnats, those mm-hmm. sparkling wines that are really fresh and usually really um, delicious and unfiltered and can be a little funky. But Georgians are now making petnat. Nice. And some people are mad about that. And I think, hey, they, they just want to have something fun, too. They've been making wine virtually the same way for 8,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Give them a flipping break, right? Yeah. But at the same time, there's a difference between making a pet nat and making like a very sellable version, a very palatable version yeah. of an orange wine that you could sell to someone who likes who asks for a Pinot Grigio and you could be like, taste this orange wine, and yeah. it doesn't really have – it's not too far-fetched from Pinot Grigio, right? Mm-hmm. It's just got a different color. Um, so this is from a friend of mine, um, John Werdeman, who is an American expat living in Georgia. Um, he's lived there for um, more than 15 years at this point, and uh, he's married to a Georgian. He and her both sing polyphony. Nice. Um, he's very well embedded in the culture and – even though there are uh, smaller producers than he and his business partner um, who make the Pheasant's Tears wines, uh, if it weren't for John Werdeman, there probably wouldn't be a lot of Georgian wine of this quality on our shores. Mm. There's still not a lot of it anyway, but um, he gave people a reason to believe in themselves and keep making wine the way they were making it because if not, they would be making it in a tourist Georgian mm-hmm. fashion to make mm-hmm. it easier to sell, you know, quicker to market kind of thing. Um, so we're drinking his Kahuri Mutsviyani uh, from Kacheti. It's a 2016, always super pretty fun, pretty wine and fun to share. Yeah, delicious. Thanks for bringing it. Yeah. It was really fun to learn about Georgian wine today, so thanks. Hopefully more to come on Scores and Pours with Georgian wine, if we can fit it in at some point. We will. And thanks for such a cool experiment to be able to tie old forms of wine and old forms of music into a more modern, equally as beautiful form of of art. Indeed. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to episode four of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. 